0: examination of the anatomy of the brain in relationship to certain functions, is that we have two completely distinct modes of perception that are taking place at the same time. And um, this is new enough that the language used to describe it uh, is still uh, different people are using different terms. So you might find somebody talking about focused awareness and broad, or focused attention and broad attention, uh, or uh, uh, explicit knowing and implicit knowing and things like that. And um, I, in, in trying to find the best way to describe uh, these two particular ways of knowing, I looked at how we use the English language we have these two words, attention and awareness, which are so much of the time they are conflated. They're treated as though they're the same things. It's because we, we have lacked the formal, conceptual uh, uh, and articulated distinction between these two ways of knowing that are happening at the same time. Um, and that, and that's why they are they're, they're, Those two terms, attention and awareness, are used more or less interchangeably, uh, very often. But on the other hand, I looked at them and there's really no question that when we use the, the term attention, even though we might try to modify it by saying broad attention or open attention or something like that, we're really changing the sense we have of the word. The sense we have of the word attention is that it's focusing in on an isolated piece of the reality that you're living in at the moment. It isolates, right? It focuses. Alright. And then the term awareness. We naturally, in using a language, in, in, in our language, will use the term awareness preferentially. Uh, we'll make statements like, Uh, oh yeah, I was aware of that, although I I didn't really pay attention to it. And so we already intuitively are recognizing that there are these two ways of knowing and even using these words in ways that are appropriate to them. And so I just very explicitly defined uh, attention to refer to the one mode of knowing and awareness to uh, refer to the other mode of, of knowing. These two are taking place simultaneously. The the failure to distinguish them in our ordinary uh, thought and speech has resulted in the uh, literature and teaching and performance of meditation being confusing unnecessarily. Uh, causing people to uh, meditate in in ways that were not particularly effective. Making the distinction makes your meditation much, much more powerful. It allows you to, uh, understanding and recognizing these two and distinguishing them, allows you to use them in ways that will hugely accelerate uh Your ability to become a very skilled meditator and in fact to become an adept meditator in a relatively short period of time so it's interesting how just simply something that's always been there uh knowing and understanding that it's uh, uh it in different terms, having a conceptual framework allows us to use it and if you think about this you You know, um, I believe this comes from a statement in the Old Testament um, that to know something is to name it. You don't know it until you've named it. Is anybody familiar with with that or perhaps its origins? Anyway, um, there really is a sense in which that's true, is it not? the funny thing is, this is kind of an aside, but uh, there's something that you don't recognize and you don't know what it is. And somebody says, oh, that's a whatchamacallit. And just having a label makes you feel like you know what it is even though you don't know anything more about it than you did before. It's, It's a funny thing. It's the way our minds work. And it's actually a reflection of these two different modes of information processing in our brain that give rise to, uh, uh, the phenomenon of of these two perceptual modes of attention and awareness. Uh, and let me just go to a different slide for those of you who weren't last night, weren't here last night to, um, Be in here. There it is. Okay, so you, this slide here compares the different qualities. But just in brief, in your ordinary experience, awareness and I call it peripheral awareness in order to, to help people uh, relate it to their experience and, and, and recognize what's what's been there all the time. But um, awareness is the background, it's the context, it's everything else you know at the same time that your attention is focused on one aspect. So, you know, you have, uh, you have, your field of conscious awareness which includes a whole lot of things like right now in this moment uh, focus focus your attention on my face and 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 the things i'm saying at the same time you are aware of sounds in your peripheral vision you are aware of the people all around you you're aware of the room uh there's a part of your mind that that knows that you're on a, a higher floor tenth floor of a building and that you're in manhattan and every all of that is a part of your peripheral awareness. That creates a background, even though your attention is focused on, on me. So, you know, we have these two. Uh, we, we have these two different. Yeah, going the wrong way. Still going the wrong way. We have these two different modes of knowing that are taking place all of the time. And we did a little guided meditation last night to help you get started on recognizing it. You see, this isn't something new. This is revolutionary in the sense that uh, it's articulated and understood. But it's something that you've been living with and experiencing your whole life. I will add to uh, what I said last night, something that I didn't, uh, which is that our capacity for attention and the part of our brains... That uh, process information in such a way that it produces a phenomenal attention is enormously more well developed than it is in uh, other mamma- mammals. Um, we see we see in primates that uh, it becomes it begins to become more and more well developed. Um, most organisms um, have both attention and awareness but the faculty of attention plays very much a secondary role and to give you an example of the uh, a mountain lion and a deer uh, a deer lives its life primarily in the state of of awareness it's broad it's open it's holistic it, it, it includes everything and it's vigilant and it's alert for anything that uh, may be of significance whether it's uh, a predator or uh, another deer infringing on its territory or whether it's a potential mate or whatever it is those are things in significance when those things appear in awareness then the deer has the capacity for attention it will focus attention on that it will evaluate it and decide how to respond to it whether it's a predator or whatever else it happens to be. Mountain lion, the same thing. The mountain lion goes through his territory or her territory um, in a state of awareness. Something unusual appears in awareness. Might be something to eat. Uh, might be another mountain lion trying to infringe on their territory. Whatever whatever it is that's in, important in the life of, uh, of a mountain lion then they do have a capacity for attention and they will focus on it and they will analyze it and and uh, then they will act accordingly. Human beings have an enormous capacity for focused attention, for doing all the things that attention does, analysis uh, and, you know, um, really that part of our brain that creates attention is responsible, it's very closely related to uh, symbolic thinking in general. Symbols is where a huge amount of information is condensed into something that is not what it represents. Like a stop sign bears absolutely no resemblance to uh, breaking a vehicle, but it has all this meaning to it. Language is, is symbolic, you know, the word cow, just a sound, it's different in every language, but uh, it carries a huge amount of, uh, of meaning. It's a very powerful tool. Uh, as a matter of fact, it's led to tool use, language development, human success in the world. The result is that we have developed an awareness deficit disorder. Both the, the deer and the mountain lion that I discussed live primarily in a state of awareness, and they invoke attention when it serves their purpose and when it's necessary. We're the opposite. We're always in a state of attention. Awareness is barely there. We have enough of it. We need to have it. But we underutilize it. And uh, our experience is dominated by attention. Which um, has some undesirable consequences. Because awareness provides the context, uh, relationships, everything else. uh, And... um, a lot of the more unfortunate aspects of our behavior come from being too attention-oriented. But anyway, there's having recognized that, number one, we have these two perceptual modes that we operate in, and number two, realizing that there are two completely uh, different, and, and vastly complex systems of information processing that give rise to these, these two perceptual modes opens us up to... Uh, uh, it's a very powerful revelation that will hugely accelerate your meditation practice, among other things. It also points the way to understanding how it is that a person can become awakened, how you can transition from being a worldling. If we go back to this... Uh, that I had up earlier. You might notice the similarity between this description here uh, uh, of a mind that breaks the world up into pieces, um, that uh, that analyzes and processes those pieces, that's very self-centered, uh, that how that characteristics characterizes the mind of the typical worldling and that has led the world to be in the state that it's in. Whereas um, holistic, relational, contextual uh, characteristic of awareness, um, that there's less processing and and quicker response, it's less personal and more objective, that these are also the characteristics, uh, non-symbolic experience is a characteristic of people who are awakened so we can even see the hints of the difference when we look at these two of the of the difference between the awakened mind and the unawakened mind and uh, we can actually trace a lot of the problems that exist in the world by being by not only overusing attention but by overusing that part of our brain that serves and to create that particular perceptual mode. So that's kind of something I didn't talk about last night. Anyway, I hope I've given enough of a summary for newcomers, and so what I want, we get as a question and answer session, people last night had questions that we didn't get a chance to deal with, and I'm sure the people who have just come today have questions, so if we could get the microphone over to this gentleman. Uh, His was the first hand, and well, well, the um, uh, this uh, well <laughs> whoever it's just that he's had his hand up for a long time. That's all. We can come back to you next.
1: Uh, so last night you, uh, you pointed out that these two different perceptual modes are controlled by two different parts of the mind. That's right. Um, parts of the brain that I guess functional MRIs have shown that one area of the brain lights up when you're engaging peripheral awareness and another part of the brain lights up when you're engaging attention. That's right. Uh, yeah. So my question is, when you are engaging the peripheral awareness, as you pointed out last night, your attention momentarily darts about. To You hear a cough. Your attention, even when you're engaging peripheral awareness, momentarily focuses on the cough. Then it, it darts to your foot. That might be hurting. And then... Some other perceptual phenomenon. Yes. So when that happens, when your attention is momentarily focused on some perceptual phenomenon, um, does do we know from a neuroscience perspective if the part of the brain that is devoted to attention is momentarily engaged, or are yes. you so you you are your peripheral yes. awareness center is right. sustained, is engaged in a sustained manner. Hmm. And then mo- you have momentary engagement of your, the part of the brain that deals with attention, even when you're dealing with peripheral awareness.
0: That's right. And it's not an either-or thing. The typical thing that would happen would be um, if, if you did an fMRI of somebody who is, uh, you, you give them a, a puzzle to solve. Okay, and so their attention is focused on it, and they're they're solving the puzzle, and you have several different areas in the brain that are associated with doing that task that are are lit up, and then you tell a person to just relax and go into an open state of uh, uh, awareness, then we see uh, we see these other areas light up, but most of the time, the it, it's it's more of one and less of the other, but they're both they're both active is is a normal state. Now, if you had somebody in fMRI and and they were meditating, um the intentional area attentional areas are not going to light up to nearly the same degree because it's a very familiar activity. It's not like solving a puzzle. And so those areas aren't doing as much work. But what will happen then uh and and you'll see at the same time if it's a meditator and they they've developed stronger uh, peripheral awareness. A successful meditator, uh, it might have taken them a long time to do this without the knowledge that, uh, that that I'm giving you, that will allow you to achieve this much more more quickly. But an experienced meditator whose attention is very relatively stable on the breath, and at the same time they have strong peripheral awareness, which is predominantly introspective. They're just watching uh, in the background the different thoughts and emotions and things like that come up. Then if there is a sound, you'll suddenly see the attentional area light up in response to it. And, and then once it's, it's passed or once it's identified, then, then that diminishes.
1: Uh, so just to clarify, something a little counterintuitive to me is when engaging in meditation, let's say focusing on the breath, You're saying you're developing not the attentional center, but you're developing the peripheral awareness center, even though you're focusing on a specific phenomenon.
0: Well, you're you're, you're doing both. What you're trying to achieve in meditation is um, stable attention and powerful peripheral awareness. You want both of these. Um, You cannot... Your peripheral awareness... Uh, decreases when when attention is flitting about from one thing to another. It's the same thing as uh, peripheral vision. And as a matter of fact, this is the perfect analogy that if you focus on a point across the room and keep your eyes, uh, if you keep the, the focus of your vision on that object, Your peripheral vision vision is very strong and you can see, you can perceive a lot in peripheral vision. Now, just glance from one thing to another and you see whatever your eyes land on, but you have very little peripheral vision. It's the same thing when attention is constantly moving, you have very poor peripheral awareness. So it's better that your attention um, be stable, essentially, Stabilizing attention gets it out of the way and allows you to have strong peripheral awareness. But the other thing, this is another thing I didn't get to last night, is that uh, it's as though attention and peripheral awareness are drawing on the same energy source or power source. The more closely you focus on something, your peripheral awareness collapses. And then you back away from it and your peripheral awareness opens up again. Or you intentionally enter into the state of peripheral awareness, and whatever your attention is focused on becomes less distinct and, and, yeah, becomes less distinct, not as vivid, not as clear. One of the things that you're doing in meditation is um, you're increasing the conscious power of the mind so that you can, so if 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 this represents attention and this represents awareness, and our normal condition is that the more attention we have, the less peripheral awareness. There's a trade-off. As one increases, the other decreases, and the differences they're big. Like you know, there's maybe an eight-inch difference here that I'm demonstrating. You increase the conscious power of the mind, and there's still this trade-off. But there's so much power that that when you increase, when you focus more closely, and realize, look, look where my hand is. The intensity of my focus is much, much greater than it was before I practiced meditation and developed this conscious power. And I can have a very high level of peripheral awareness, which can be introspective at the same time that I'm focusing closely. This would be a situation, what I'm illustrating here, you might be focusing on the sensations of the breath so closely that you are observing the arising and passing away of the individual sensations that occur in the course of a single in-breath you're focusing really closely uh, in in attention and you're seeing incredible detail. At the same time, you have this really powerful introspective awareness that is basically watching that attentional function happen, watching whatever's happening in the background of your mind, uh, thoughts and so forth, arising and passing away at the same time. And you can make a shift back and forth and you, to increase your peripheral awareness doesn't involve so much loss of attention. And to in- increase your attentional acuity doesn't result in as much loss of peripheral awareness. So this is where we're trying to go. And this is the definition that I, that I gave you of mindfulness, is that you, can, that you have an optimal interaction of attention and awareness. So when you're a person whose mind has not been trained, and you don't have a lot of conscious power, uh, something happens that really grabs your attention, has a lot of emotional content. Somebody says something and pushes your button, you basically lose peripheral awareness. You, you're you no, no longer perceiving the context of the situation and you tend to react. What is the focus of your attention? It's that emotion of whatever it is, anger or or offense or whatever that you're feeling. And, uh, and, and you've totally lost contact, and, and you don't have clarity. In an optimal interaction of attention and awareness, uh, which would be a state of mindfulness, something happens, yeah, your attention goes to it, but you don't lose that much peripheral awareness. You, you remain in context. You would have, once your mind becomes powerful enough, then you have mindfulness with clear comprehension. That's that's the translation of uh, sati sampadjana, and mindfulness with clear comprehension. What does that mean? It means you know what you are thinking, feeling, saying, or doing in the moment. You are aware of what is going on around you. The effect of what you're saying or doing is having on other people. So you have attention and awareness. Uh, uh, so that's a state, high state of mindfulness. It becomes mindfulness with clear comprehension when not only that, but you introspectively know where the thoughts and the feelings and and the speech and the action that are occurring or are about to occur are coming from. In terms in, in, internally, you know that you're about to react from conditioning, for example, or that you are reacting from conditioning. Uh, so you not only know what what you are thinking, feeling, saying, or doing, you know why you are thinking, feeling, saying, or doing, whatever it is. And the next aspect of clear comprehension is that you know in that moment whether or not what you are uh, feeling, thinking, saying, or doing is appropriate to your goals and intentions in terms of the outcome of the present situation, and in terms of is this consistent with the kind of person that I want to be? And is this the kind of behavior that corresponds to the precepts that I'm trying to keep? Does this kind of behavior uh, help bring me closer to uh, awakening? Does this kind of thinking, is this kind of emotion, is this bringing me closer to the awakened state or is it moving me further from it? Is it, selfishly, is it selfishly oriented or is it compassionately oriented? So on and so forth. That is mindfulness with clear comprehension. You have to have very, power, very, very powerful uh, peripheral awareness, introspective peripheral awareness, coupled with uh, powerful attention in order to have that kind of understanding in the moment. And that's what we want. That's where we'd like to go. That's, that's the ideal kind of mindfulness to have. So, now this gentleman over here has been waiting a while, So, and Cliff's getting his exercise this morning. We just make sure that everyone that asks a question is on the opposite side of the room. He won't have to do a workout later on today. Uh, on the uh, a chart here, <clears throat> the table, um, each uh, uh, awareness and attention are quite different, except for the uh, last or the bottom uh, characteristic, which is exactly the same. Not Uh, quite. There's one difference. Okay, so that's what I want you to explain. And and I understand introspective in the common way, but uh, extrospective I I could use some more uh, clarity on. Okay. Uh, Well, first of all, just the terms. Extrospective refers to anything that arises outside of your mind. So this would be any sensation, uh, visual, auditory, olfactory, gustatory, um, uh, proprioceptive, um, anything that comes from outside your mind. Introspective are mental objects. That's thoughts, emotions, memories, um, things that come entire one is looking in, the other is looking out. Looking into the mind and outside of the mind. Okay. So the, uh, the feeling of discomfort in your, uh, hips when you're sitting is not, not introspective. It's extrospective. But your mind's reaction to it, you know, the, the resistance to it, the desire to move, that's introspective. Right? Okay. So that's what those two terms, two terms refer to. The difference between them is peripheral awareness can be introspective and extrospective at the same time. You can be peripherally aware of thoughts and feelings at the same time. You're peripherally aware of sounds and sensations, right? That's the difference because attention its one or the other. It's either focused on a sound or sensation or it's focused on a thought or it's focused on emotion. The other thing that you can do with attention is you can check in to what's happening in your mind. And the interesting thing about that is, if I try to direct my attention inward and see what my mind is doing right now, I don't find anything except that I'm looking in. I mean, um, I mean, and try it. You know, direct your attention to what's going on in your mind. I'm looking in my mind, so I'm not seeing anything interesting. Okay. But you can look into your mind and you can see what was happening just before. If you have, if you were in a state of introspective awareness in the moment before, you can direct your attention inward and you can have that more detailed analytical perception of, aha, that's, that's what was happening in my mind just before I, I checked in with attention. So that's why it's an or the other it, it's an either or for attention it's an "and for uh, awareness okay um, i I'm not sure who's first, so just uh, uh, pick somebody oh. one, one of these oh, i was
2: um I was really interested to I've been meditating and reading your book and i've been thank you so much for all that you've done to help me with this, and I, I feel like I've made some real progress in my meditation practice, and, and really by just following the program, having no idea what I'd gotten myself into, frankly. Yes. Uh, not a, a clue. I thought I was going to de-stress and you know meditate and relax, and once I started doing it, I realized there was so a whole other world here for me, and so I just kept moving on, and it, the information is so grounded and so helpful that I kept finding I'm making progress to the point now where I, uh, my meditation and I, my day-to-day living seem to be kind of coming together. And that's where I have my question. And I really never, I've been doing this more experientially, taking information, but yesterday when you said mindfulness is really just the uh, point in time when you're meditating and you have that attention and peripheral awareness, and, and that's what I want to Feel like i'm wanting to take into my day and i've and, and i wonder about is there a balance between how i meditate how i you know my regular sitting meditation maybe walking meditation or how i look at mindfulness and other practice to maybe be more efficient or effective in my balance of how i'm doing this in other words i feel like a lot of things are just happening in a good way things are because i meditate and keep out of practice mm-hmm. i do find I'm moving forward in mindfulness and uh, awakening and, and seeing what's mm-hmm. going on. But I feel like as I've progressed, so, I progress, there's I see like there's this bigger, even more than I ever imagined, out there for me. And it's like, am I? Am, what am I? Am I doing this right? Am I? I don't know quite where to go next to ex, sort of expedite or be more efficient and effective and or maybe more balanced. And if you get my my question. Yeah.
0: Are, are you? Are you primarily asking how you bring, uh, how you bring the experience of uh, mindfulness that you've developed in meditation into your daily life? Or are you, talking, or are you asking, am I, what am I doing with my development of mindfulness in meditation, plus how do I take it in my daily life?
2: I, I think it's a little bit of both of those. Both, both. And okay. what I see is myself uh, in a situation uh, I will notice and be aware. I'm much mm-hmm. more aware. I'm oftentimes downstream too far. Mm-hmm. I'm getting better at that. Mm-hmm. I see myself improving, but it's like I just feel like, a, uh, like I'm really barely, as, I'm not doing as well at that as I am of just sitting and meditating. And so I think, well, I'll just meditate more and that'll help. You know, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll do, and that does seem to help. Is yes. there any, any other tips you might offer for me? And,
0: yeah, well, <clears throat> it's a big question. I'm going to be uh to to answer it fully and uh, see if i can do it as quickly as uh, as briefly as possible okay in meditation um as far as the awareness side you, you you're, you're developing stability of attention and powerful peripheral awareness and in the course of your meditation your attention becomes more and more stable and your uh, awareness becomes more and more powerful and then it becomes more and more introspective, and it, the mindfulness aspect of meditation is where you're using you're using peripheral awareness to help you stabilize your attention, and the more stable stable your attention becomes the uh, the more peripheral awareness you can exercise. The other thing you're doing is uh, you, you're learning to focus more and more closely with attention without losing peripheral awareness. So, you know, you're going from this situation I talked about, you're, you're increasing the conscious power of your mind so that you can sustain a very close uh, attentional analysis of the sensations of the breath while still having a high level of peripheral awareness. You're using peripheral awareness to stabilize your breath by uh, it's letting you know when... Uh, it's letting you know when you're about to lose the breath because your mind has been becoming more and more preoccupied with a distraction. And by letting you know that, then you can keep that from happening. And when you repeat that often enough, then the mind just automatically corrects for it. Same thing with dullness. So you're increasing, what you're doing is you're, you're cultivating very strong peripheral awareness, you're increasing the overall conscious power of your mind, and you're training your attention so that it remains more stable. Now, we tend to compartmentalize. We get really good at doing this when we're sitting on the cushion. And then we get up and we go into the world, and we go back to the mode of we're highly attentive to the things that seem important to us, and our peripheral awareness collapses. To live in a state of mindfulness, okay, you have to practice, and you basically go through the same... Same, Exactly the same process that happens in meditation. You get up in the morning and say, okay, I'm going to be as mindful as I can today. And then 6 o'clock in the evening you realize, I haven't really been mindful at all, all day. Okay. It's kind of like you sit down and say, okay, I'm going to focus my attention on the breath, and you suddenly realize that for the last 10 minutes you've been thinking about your vacation in the Caribbean and uh, the argument you had with so-and-so and back to the vacation in the Caribbean and what are you gonna pack and all that other kind of stuff, right? A lot of similarity there. You deal with them both in the same way. Um, the process of, of developing it in daily life it parallels the process of developing mindfulness and sitting. A lot of it spontaneously overflows just because you have more powerful consciousness and because for 45 minutes or an hour or maybe two hours a day, however long you're meditating, You are in a state of high peripheral awareness and that, that bleeds over into your daily life. But it has, but making it purposeful allows that to happen much more quickly and much more strongly. You mentioned walking meditation. Walking meditation, if you think about it, it's kind of a halfway point between sitting meditation and being in the world. Um, when you're, when you're sitting, um, It's easy, it's easier to keep a focus on the meditation object, I mean, at least once you've gotten past the stage of mind wandering and forgetting. It's easier to maintain a a focus on the meditation object than it is to maintain a strong peripheral awareness. So you kind of, when you're sitting, you're always working to enhance the peripheral awareness aspect. When you're walking, it's the opposite. The peripheral awareness is really strong. and Trying to keep your attention focused on the sensations of your feet when you're walking. That's the challenge, right? So, it's, it's, um, it, it's a really good practice because what you'd want to do is you want to move into the world where you do, where you are like you're walking. You have strong peripheral awareness and you still have, have the attention, uh, right? So, uh, walking meditation is very important. As a matter of fact, you can achieve most of the things that you achieve in sitting meditation through walking meditation. There are some things that you can't, but uh, at a certain point uh, you need you need that very profound turning inward. So I, I hope I addressed uh, your, your question there. Yeah. Yes, thank you. Why don't you we go clockwise? I pass it to the gentleman behind you.
3: Hi. Um, I just have a question. Could you, from your point of view, explain from both the spiritual point of view and the neuroscientific point of view what the difference is between something that's superficially learned or understood, weakly learned, and something deeply, powerfully learned and understood? And then, you know, after you provide the models mm-hmm. for both, how do you get from that, the first to the second?
0: Sure. I, if, if I understand correctly what you're asking is that you can study and you can learn about uh, emptiness and uh, impermanence and no-self and interconnectedness and, and really understand these things really, really, really well. You could write a dissertation on, on these things, right? But your perception of the world is still the same as it always was before. That's because the part of your brain, the part of your mind, of your mind brain however you want to think of it anyway let's say the part of your mind the part of your mind that understands this intellectually is quite separate from the part of from the deep intuitive perception that gives rise to your view of the world when you open your eyes in the morning you see the world based on a set of primal assumptions that Uh, that all of the perceptual interpretations that you have are based on. Those primal assumptions are that you are a separate entity in a world of other separate entities, that your happiness and your unhappiness are dependent upon your interaction between your personal separate self and all these other things out there, and therefore your task is to figure out how the world works well enough so that you can manipulate it and get what you want and avoid what you don't want. So that's your basic perceptual mode. Intellectually, you know all about um, emptiness. You know you can never understand the world well enough. You you understand impermanence. You understand causal interconnectedness. You understand that uh, you, you really aren't a separate self and that that's just an illusion of the mind. But that's all up in this corner somewhere probably in the left hemisphere of, of your brain is this nice intellectual understanding. And you can pull it out and you can run the information process and you can do the logic and and you could explain it to somebody. But deep down in your mind where your perception of reality and yourself and your relationship to everything else comes from, it's still operating on the old paradigm. So that's the difference. That's the difference between intellectual understanding and insight. Insight is deep, it's intuitive. It changes you know, when you have insight into impermanence, that means that that the sort of at, at, at the level of the axiomatic assumptions that your mind generates its perceptions from, the what used to the axiom used to be the world is made of things. Yes, they come into existence and they persist for a while and then they pass away, you know, and and that sounds like impermanence. But impermanence is realizing there is only process and that everything is causally interconnected and that even an emptiness is recognizing that even seeing one process as a part of a larger process is something that's imposed by the mind. So, understanding uh, these things intellectually, there's a difference when the assumption that I am a separate person, uh, well, in terms of obviously using impermanence as an example. So the assumption that the world consists of discrete things, That, uh, at least for the between their coming into being and their passing away, they are relatively self existent. You know, they may have arisen during due to causes and conditions, and they may pass away due to causes and conditions, but at the deep intuitive level, what your mind is assuming is that they are self existent in between those two events. That gets replaced when you have insight, true insight into impermanence, that gets replaced by the realization that there is only process. And you will what will happen is at a deep intuitive level there will be events that happen in consciousness that gradually alter that picture so that you go through a period of realizing that that all of these so called things, they don't really have a period of persistent self existence what happens is that they're in their arising and passing away, that they're passing away and, and uh, the passing away and the arising are really one thing. You know, the, the, the end of the beginning is the beginning of the end. Uh, then as that matures a little more, it's the beginning of the beginning is the end of the end. There's only process. It's just flow. There's just the flow of causal process, and there are no things. Fifth patriarch of Zen, there are no things. Ultimately, there are no things. That's what he was talking about, impermanence, emptiness. That there, when at this deep, unconscious level that your worldview is generated from, you replace the assumption that the world consists of self-existent things with the view that there is only process. And even the appearance of arising and passing away, much less the appearance of persistence in between, is, is something that is really an illusion that's imposed on these things in order for you to deal with the world because, uh, because it makes it much easier to manipulate the world in your pursuit of happiness and your avoidance of pain. So that's what a real insight into impermanence is like, and likewise for emptiness and interconnectedness and so forth. It's when the fundamental assumptions at a deep unconscious level are are, are changed. Now, one of the things that happens is these are really foundational assumptions, right? When they're when they disappear, and before they're replaced by something else. You're in, uh, you're, you're in a place with, you've, you've got no ground. And if you are still attached to the idea that you, you are a self, that's a terrifying place to be in. Right? And so that's why the realization of impermanence, uh, if you're familiar, how many people are familiar with the progress of insight, the 16 stages of progress? Not too many of you, but in those... It's a series of well-defined stages that somebody goes through in the the process of developing insight. There is, and and particularly, it's describing the process of insight based on insight into impermanence. So there's there's there is a stage where you have a clear perception of the rising and passing away of things, and it's oh wow, isn't this fun? Isn't this wonderful? And then there's the, the realization that the passing away begins to become predominant. And then comes the insight that there there is only process. But you're still attached to that. Here I am. I am a I I, I am I am the only separate self-existent thing in the universe and everything else is only process. I have no hope of controlling and manipulating it and being happy and everything else. The mind at an unconscious level, the reaction is terror. And so following, you know, in the pro- in the progress of insight, there's the stage of arising and passing away, which is followed by the stage of the knowledge of disillusion, which is followed by the stage of knowledge of terror, which followed by the stage of knowledge of misery, followed by the stage of knowledge of disgust, which is followed by the stage of knowledge of, of determination. It's like, oh my God, there's no way out of this. I'm stuck, you know, and... Uh, and that's followed by knowledge of reobservation which is 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 very painful because you're you're basically going through this this process and then where it culminates is when you realize that there is no self then all of a sudden the problem disappears you're just a part of the flow you're part of the process you know it's like and that is the first stage of awakening that's a path realization but uh, and this is what happens when you replace the assumptions that you've lived your whole life on and that our whole entire culture believes in and the way we perceive our world with these different ways of perceiving. Uh, there is that interim stage where you haven't replaced, where you haven't replaced the old way of understanding with the new way of understanding. And we can get into this more later, but you'll notice how this way of perceiving corresponds more to the uh, the mind that is uh, not wedded to the false views, whereas this way of perceiving is really the source of the delusion that we live in. But this is functionally very valuable and very useful. Even if you're a Buddha, you don't want to lose the, these abilities because you're not going to be able to function in the world. Buddha never would have been able to teach and, and awaken uh, thousands of people over 45 years of teaching had he not been able to exercise his capacity. He would, much less he wouldn't have been able to even feed, feed himself and take care of himself. I mean, you know
3: so: uh, just, to, uh, just to follow up, so if, when getting to the sort of more superficial to so the deeper. It yes. sounds like you're saying there has to be a little less intensity with the intellectual reasoning and there's going to be yeah. a fear that's keeping you from really changing your assumptions and so on.
0: Yes, that's right. What I'm saying is intellectual understanding, it's useful because when these unconscious parts of your mind are seeking a way of understanding that, uh, to replace what has now become obviously not true, um uh it helps to provide a reference, but to overly dwell on the intellectual is going to block you from developing the intuitive, so the intellectual is valuable, but people become awakened without the intellectual understanding too just um we got a couple of the the, the uh I was that for you, so. What's that. Yeah. Okay. Thank
4: you. Um, so uh, I have uh, two quick questions. One is when you're trying to strengthen your attention and concurrently um, expand your peripheral awareness, um, I'm trying to understand how you can do the latter while not um, like detracting attention uh, from your attentional object, um, if that makes sense.
0: Uh, you're saying how can you? Develop your peripheral awareness without your attention going to objects in peripheral awareness and away from the meditation object.
4: Actually, what I was thinking was, like, if I try to focus on the sensations in my nose, say, while I'm breathing, I have, there's like an intentional moment, if you will, when I'm saying, like, uh, okay, also, like, expand outward, like... In the background, yeah, so it feels like I'm jumping from my nose to that thought back to, yeah my
0: and, nose. and you are exactly when you form the intention to have strong peripheral awareness, uh, your attention is going to try to fulfill that intention. what it's going to do is it's it's going to to go to things in your peripheral awareness and say, yeah, but the really the if if you notice you already knew those things were present in your consciousness before your attention went to them. And when your attention goes back to the breath, you still know that they're there. Now, so uh, it may seem like, oh, this is a problem that my attention is trying to do the job that I want peripheral awareness to do. I want peripheral awareness to get better at making me know, allowing me to know these things in the background. But now attention keeps trying to do that job by jumping around, and I want attention to stay on the breath. So that seems like a problem. It's not really. Um, Your attention is always going to try to satisfy that intention until it realizes it doesn't have to. And and not only that, you don't need to deliberately do it. You just let it happen by itself. After a while, attention will no longer do that because at an unconscious level, the processes that are driving your attention will recognize that, hey, you know, I can be peripherally aware of all of these things without redirecting my attention to them and then coming back to the breath. And it actually helps to develop peripheral awareness that this happens. Not that you should do it deliberately, but it helps that, that this happens. Well, I, and, and you can do it deliberately too. As a matter of fact, in stage three, I encourage you to check in with attention to help develop Awareness. But take, for example, um, suppose you, you develop an interest in um, some particular thing, uh, it becomes a kind of a hobby preoccupation of yours, okay? And having trouble thinking of something other than what I always say, so I guess I'll say what I always say. Suppose you become interested in sports cars. And you will come to a place, where, well, what will happen is that your attention will go, anytime there's a sports car in your, uh, in, in your vicinity, your attention will go to it. And then after a while, you become aware of sports cars and your attention only goes to the ones that you're interested in, right? Because whatever attention goes to repeatedly sends a signal to the unconscious processes that operate the faculty of peripheral awareness and it says peripheral awareness uh these things are important so we want these to register in peripheral awareness whenever they're there so just the simple act of forming the intention i want to have strong peripheral awareness so while i'm focusing on the sensations of my breath i want to continue to hear the sounds i want to continue to feel the sensations of my body i want to let the thoughts come and go and now I find that, yes, my attention keeps going to sounds, going to sensations and saying, oh, yeah, I'm aware of that. Going to thoughts, say, oh, yeah, I'm aware of that. Thought. Thoughts are dangerous. They catch attention and you know, they're getting lost in them. But, but that's all right. You just let that happen. And after a while, you find that attention just does that less and less.
4: That makes a lot of sense. Um, thank you. Um, my second question was um, it just in the sense that Um, I think you said yesterday you can kind of only know, I don't know if you said, like, the contents of your consciousness, like, at any given time. Um, If I kind of apply a sort of radical doubt when I'm doing meditation and say, like, if I close my eyes, I find that, like, when you say, like, uh, sensations in your foot, for example, I have to apply a concept of my foot to, like, sensations. I know there's this faculty of proprioception, but like i have to it feels like a little bit of an unnatural overlay of like a concept onto it
0: it absolutely is yes right oh. yeah i mean your 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 foot is a concept from sensation your mind has created the concept of a foot and you've been carrying that around and it even when you're following the breath at the nose you you know and i say to you uh, focus your attention on the sensations produced by breathing, but not until you get to stage six will you be able to separate those sensations from the concept of air and nose and body and in and out they 'll all be a part they'll you know they 'll all be encapsulated within that experience but as uh, as as you continue to practice you'll reach a level of refinement where you're just experiencing the sensations and you won't be able you won't the the concept of in-breath and out-breath will disappear so you're following these sensations you're not even sure what's in and out although you can instantly know if you want to uh you follow them and after a while it's just there's just sensations there's coolness there's warmth there's movement there's impact and and you're just seeing the individual sensations arise and pass away and there's no longer the concept of nose in there there's no longer the concept of air in there there's just the sensations it's a wonderful thing but that's an advanced that's an event that happens in in an advanced stage of uh, skill development
4: thank you
5: Um, my question has to do with meditation objects. Um, you talk about the breath a lot, and I noticed it. I just flipped through your book last night, and I saw a lot of breath. <laughs>
2: yeah.
5: um, my, the meditation object that I prefer is the inner sound or mm-hmm. not a sound. And so, my question is if I can use that meditation object with the model you're teaching.
0: You you certainly can. Um, You can use any meditation object, but there are uh, a number of techniques that uh, I have you use that you would have to modify if you're using something other than the breath. Um, For example, um, in stages five and six, I'm asking you to discern the sensations of the breath in all the different parts of your body if you're using the uh, inner sound as an object you can use you can use inner sound as an object when you get to that stage you'll either have to you, what you do is you look at the goal and the goal in stage 5 is to have a to be more alert more awake have a higher level of mindfulness uh more uh conscious power uh, at the end of your meditation than you did at the beginning whereas usually it's kind of the other way around. It diminishes in the course of your meditation. So, in terms of that goal, you'll have to, if you want to stay with some other object, you'll need to think uh, how how can I achieve the same goal using the object that I have. And if you can come up with a way, that's fine. You're, you're still basically uh, what the ten stages are is a fundamentally. There, the skeleton is a systematic framework that says, let's, let's, let's knock off the easiest problems first and then we'll progress to the more and more difficult ones stepwise. And that's much easier than, than spending a lot of time struggling with, with a major problem while you haven't even developed the skills that you need to undertake it. But the other thing that you might find if, if you if you, you, you could use almost anything for a meditation object until you arrive at the place where there's a specific method being discussed that you can't easily substitute your meditation object for. You would probably find, that by the time you got to stage five, stage six, that you could switch your meditation object to the breath in the body if you wanted to, and you'd be successful. So you can do it either way. You can either modify the method that you're using, uh, or, or you can go ahead and, and switch to the object that I've used to, to, to describe these things. But um, this is an important thing to understand when using this book, is what's important uh, is to always remember what, what is the end and what are the means. The end is the same. No matter, you know, if we start at the beginning, No matter what meditation technique you do, you are going to experience forgetting and mind-wandering. And no matter what meditation object or whatever method, you can apply the principles that I describe to first overcome mind-wandering, and then to lengthen the periods between forgetting, and then to eventually not forget what you're doing at all. And then no matter what system you're using, there will be gross distractions. You can learn to overcome gross distractions. No matter what system of meditation you're using, you'll experience dullness, drowsiness, sleepiness. You can apply the principles that are in that book to overcoming those. So this becomes a little bit less obvious when you get to the more advanced stages where I'm using techniques that are specific to the breath. But the same principle holds: that the goal, the the end, the object, uh, the thing that you're trying to achieve in a particular stage, will be something that is that you want to achieve no matter what you're practicing. You just have to adapt the means to achieve that end. Right?
4: Thank you. A uh,
0: bunch of hands now. Uh, um.
6: So I've been trying to apply a lot of the strategies from your book and being to be more mindful um, in my day-to-day. And I do come upon situations where I will immediately note I have a very negative response to, in a situation. And I'll note that a very negative response, very negative emotion, and then I'll physically feel you know high blood pressure, you know th- things get out of whack and so what I try and do is is switch that lever and um uh and come up with a more neutral a neutral response a neutral emotion uh and kind of like from your book um uh mm-hmm. okay let it you know let it go yeah and um and that and that's been working, and I've been finding that i have a whole lot more equanimity during the day, yeah. um, and it's it's making a big difference in how I interact with people. But my question is, will that immediate negative response, you know, that's a real jerk, or oh, this is a really crappy yeah. situation? Will that immediate negative response before it gets switched dissipate? <laughs> you know, will it become attenuated so I don't always get that immediate response if I continue yeah. to meditate?
0: Yes, yes, it, it, it will happen, and and you're, you're doing the right thing. You know, focus on something positive, or try to elicit a positive. There's a lady up at the front here that's been waiting for the microphone for a while now, and
7: uh, thank you so much for your teachings. Um, one of the things that occurred to me a couple of questions ago was that, in some ways, as I as I try to teach others as well at a certain level. Um, from a secular perspective, there seems to be a shift into uh, when you're talking about his question, dropping down to the space of intuitive understanding, not this, uh, you know, intellectual understanding. So, how might you suggest uh, offering uh, what I think for many is a surrender or a faith or a willingness to accept grace or the mystery of the? ephemera of phenomena, the interplay, the, you know, the, all of that uh, when in fact it's, it's not to be understood by just the intellectual mind. It's just the being and not the doing. The effort of the doing is to help us yes. with the being, which is non-conceptual. So do you have any things to say about that? Well,
0: I, I, um, all of the words you used are, are right, the, initially. You know, surrender, accept, trust in the process. The most important thing is to stop doing and, or not, yes. Uh, it's, the most important thing is, is not to stop doing, it's to stop believing that there is somebody who can do and does do. This is a story that we tell ourselves. Um, the event happens. The closest thing that, that, the imaginary you can do uh, is to form an intention. What actually happens is, uh, you know, uh, even in something as obvious as raising your arm, you, all you do is form the intention and then all of these automatic processes, beginning in your brain and extending right through to the muscles will cause your arm to raise. And if any of those, if, if there was anything that interfered with that process, your arm wouldn't raise and there's nothing that you could do about it. You can't raise your arm. You can't uh, redirect your attention. All you can do is intend that your attention be redirected and it happen. So in teaching, and you'll notice in in, in the book, um, let's see if I just pull up a slide here from... Uh, From stage two, let's see, and um, I'll just go ahead and skip through the slides here till we find the one. you are not in control of your mind tell that to people when people saying you know um, i i I try but i can't well you're not in control of your mind you know there's um, let your meditation practice illuminate what's really going on what they're doing is resisting what's obvious they're having an experience that is telling them this really important thing that I can't control my mind. What's wrong? Why can't I? Well, it's just you never could and you never did and you never will. That your mind behaves according to its conditioning, even in the most sophisticated mental processes that are happening. And you tell this yourself the story that you did it or you decided it or you made it happen, but you didn't. And so get over it.
7: In the meditation, it's it's out staring you in the face. it so just remind the person. But that part of turning over in that faith or trust or the one who knows, as I know Jack Kornfield likes to call it, inside of you, right? That intuitive part, that knowing one, that loving awareness that is everything yeah. to sort of... It's not something that you can really convince someone is out there unless right. they've felt it. And yet how do you sort of maybe point the way in that direction to say you within you can trust yourself enough right. so that you don't have to rely on what's up here so much. Right.
0: It, yes, and it, 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 it's, it's even more that... Uh, it, it's that the more you try to think your way to it, the, the the less likely you are to actually realize it. Because the part the part of your mind the that... Uh, Needs to see that this is true directly. Uh, can't see it as long as there's this huge uh, snowstorm of thoughts and ideas and concepts in the way. All that, all that the, all that your the deeper parts of your mind are going to see are all of these mental constructs that. Uh, that you've elaborated, and then they're blocking the uh, the field divisions. So we
7: live though in a data-driven society where now everything is being measured by algorithms and digital marketing, and everything right. is predictive behavior and stuff. So people are now mm-hmm. being told that this is that everything is quantifiable. So do you have yeah. any suggestions for how to deal with that? Um,
0: I, I think the best thing is. Uh, You know the the truth is always staring them in the face, and the very things, if you're trying to teach somebody, the very things that they are seeing as problems, and the things that frustrate them, are the the truths that challenge the delusion that they're living in, and point that out to them. Every time you you know you, you get I get angry at myself because I do such and such, well. That's nonsense. Such and such happened because your mind was conditioned through causes and conditions. Your mind was in such a state that in that moment, those causes and conditions produced that result. Uh, and by the way, this might lead into a discussion of determinism and free will. We'll cover that later. But I'll just tell you right now the future is not determined, only the past. Anyway, but um, you know, somebody says, says you know why why can't i do such and such well you just you have to say the fact that you can't do it is telling you something really important the you that you think could do it is a fiction and the actual doing is a fiction it's a happening you know there's a, there's that very kind of classic thing that Everybody thinks sounds so neat, but they don't really understand. In the seeing, there is only the seeing. In the thinking, there is only the thinking. Right. In the walking, there is only the walking. There, there is there is no agent, and there there is no doing by an agent. And this is the truth that's staring you in your face. In, in, in your face, and this is the thing that you're getting frustrated at, is that. The reality of the world doesn't match up with your idea of the way you think it is. So, so smarten up. Change your, change your way of thinking about how things are and instead say, you know, it's a really interesting thing. Psychological studies show that when a person holds a belief, no matter how much evidence, no matter how strong the evidence is to the contrary, they, they don't want to let go of that belief. And really, that's the way we really all are. And that's the way it is when it comes to the idea that I am a separate self and, you know, this world of self-existent objects and blah, 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 everything else that leads us. That is a delusion we live in. And instead, when, instead, when in meditation and outside of meditation, you know, reality is just slamming us in the face and saying, it ain't like that. No, it's not like that. We don't want to accept it. We don't want to change the way we see things, but you relax, you open up, you sur- surrender, you trust, and then it starts to happen. So: okay.
3: I have a question. Um, I actually have two few questions, and the first one is, um, well, I have to give you a little backstory about it. Um, I've been meditating for six years, and I think I last time I came to the seminar here in June in last year. And um, I also watched a couple of videos. You have it on YouTube and you have an interview with Stephanie Nash. And, and then I think one of the videos you talked about how uh, the importance of practicing longer, sitting longer and, and practicing. So I've been, the last seven months, I've been practicing sitting um, whenever I can for one hour. Yes. And that kind of um, opened up a, I, I've been receiving insights. Uh, you call it, um, mm-hmm. and uh, so my question is like, how do you know the insights to be true? Um, like some of, the, I know one of the insights I would share an example is like the you know people talked about power of thoughts and how it's important to uh, think the right thoughts and mm-hmm. whatever the case may be because it becomes your intention, and it becomes your reality. Um, yes. and so the one insight was that. You know for my fa- for me to be born uh, my family had to think about it at first uh, my mother or father whatever and then eventually I became me so there was a it was very powerful to know that I exist because of a thought you know mm-hmm. or we all do um, so that I believed and so there's other ones that, that are coming in once in a while and I'm not sure if it's supposed to be meant for me or was it meant to be shared with others. Um, that's my question. Um, that's the second yeah, question. I'm not really
0: clear on what your, your question is. Well oh,
3: my question is like, does the insight? Are they? How do you know if they're true? How do you know if uh,
0: something is true? Mm-hmm. Well, that's the challenge with everything, isn't it? Is that uh, we we come into this world and all we have is sensory input initially and our infant minds try to make sense of that sensory input. They begin to create a world. And then um, when we become old enough that we can learn from others, we begin to assimilate uh, their views and knowledge in the construction of our worldview and then we begin to assimilate the whole cultural uh, knowledge and structure so uh, the views that the views that we have are partly those that we've constructed ourselves I mean we do continue to take the information in from other people from from books from teachers uh, and from cultural attitudes but We also play an active role in, in creating our, our understanding of the world. I mean, basically, we all live in a world that we've created in our own minds. But there is input from something that's out there. And so we're always faced with the question of what, what is true and what is not. And, um, basically, It's just common sense. Your idea of how things are, if you are confronted with uh, instances that contradict that, then there's obviously something wrong with your idea of how things are and how things work, right? And if you have a new idea, a new insight, if a new way of seeing things arises, it either works better, in terms of accounting for the experiences that arise for you, or it doesn't. So truth reveals itself. Um, Do you all remember going through adolescence? In childhood, you learned a whole lot of ways of seeing things and understanding things and ways of behaving in response to things. And they worked really well when you were 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. And then you reached a certain age where things weren't that way anymore, you know, and you realized that your childhood views and understanding were wrong, and it was terrible. It's what makes adolescence so terrible is that, is that we have these ideas of the way things are, and uh, they stop working. We have these ways of reacting. You know, when you're 8 years old and you're unhappy, you cry and somebody else makes things right. When you're 16, it doesn't work that way. Right. Um, when you're 10, uh, you might throw a temper tantrum and uh, uh, you get your way and you feel better. But you know, uh, when you're 20, you throw a temper tantrum and uh, it just—it's not going to work at all. It's going to have just the opposite effect. You know, we have—we go through this whole process. We're doing this our whole lives. Is we're trying to to modify. Our understanding of the world to fit reality. But the more, the more superficial and the less attached we are to the particular aspects of our worldview, the more easily they change for us. Uh, the deeper and the more profound the change that they demand, the more resistant we are to them and the harder it is for them to happen, which is what makes the practice of meditation so important having these profound insights that are actually changing our perception of things uh, at, at such a fundamental level. So how do you know that an insight is true? Usually an insight is triggered by an insight, what I call an insight experience. And an insight experience is something that makes it obvious that your way of understanding things uh doesn't work like the examples in uh, that i was just talking about with this lady here in meditation in particular you start to learn that a lot of things that you believed you know you you believe that there's a self but there's really a whole your mind is a composite of a lot of different uh things uh you know And the mind is not a single thing, but a collective of different mental processes. Trying to stay focused on the breath can feel like herding cats, right? Right? The less harmony among different parts of your mind, the more dissatisfaction and impatience you'll feel. The more impatience, the greater the disharmony, creating a a feedback loop and frustration. And your reaction will be you'd want to get out of the situation that is uh, creating all this conflict. What you want to do is uh, to... um, You want to continue... You want to learn to accept... Um, (laughs) Yeah, see? So, if you can let go of the frustration, if you can stop resisting, if you can surrender to the process, if you can say, Okay, um... This is what's happening, but what's good about it? Well, what's good about it is there are those periods where my meditation feels good. There are those periods where my mind gets quiet. And it is really comfortable sitting here. It's really nice to let go of the hustle and bustle and hurry and franticness of the world to give myself this period of time every day to to just be with myself. So, formula for success in meditation. Relax. just means let go of a mental or physical tension as soon as you become aware of it. Look for the joy. Look for the positive. This is what she talked about as well. She's, you're just bright on with that. You know, The natural tendency is to dwell on the negative, to reinforce the negative. I mean, we do that all the time. But train yourself not to. form the intention not to. Tell yourself in advance. When that happens to me, I'm going to find what's positive. Do that not just in meditation, do that in life, in every aspect of life. Observe means pay attention to what's happening without reacting or rejecting. This is what's going to allow the deep unconscious parts of your mind to begin to reprogram themselves. As long as you stay in a state of resistance and judgment and everything else, um, then unconscious mind parts of your mind are going to try to make the world fit your world view. But just observe and let go of that. And now the unconscious parts of your mind are going to start reprogramming the world view to fit what's happening. The other thing is, just no matter what it is, let it come. Don't try to stop it. Don't try to, you know, do anything about it. Let it be there, as long as it needs to be there. This even includes emotions of frustration and things like that. You can refocus your attention on some positive aspect of your practice, but that feeling of frustration stays there in the background. That's all right. Let it be there, as long as it needs to be there. And then, no matter what it is, whoops, let it go, you know. Don't try to hold on to the positive. Don't try to hold on to anything. Let everything come, let it be, let it go. Do it from a state of relaxed non-resistance. Be as much as you can the non-grasping, non-judgmental observer. It's just like, ah, okay, so, reality is happening in front of my mental eyes. And so let me just accept it for what it is and, and, and let, let the understanding develop. That's not relevant to what we're talking about. Now, another source of uh, when you start to have insights. First of all, there's two kinds of insights. Mundane insights and supra spelled S-U-P-R-A, Mundane Insights, which means, uh, mundane means worldly, and supra means beyond, outside of the world. The mundane view is the one that I encapsulate and summarize by saying, I believe I am a separate self in a world of self-existent objects, and I crave happiness and and I have, uh, uh, I, I crave to be free from suffering. And so therefore, I am busy trying to figure out how to manipulate this world to make myself happy and to avoid unhappiness. And that's the delusion that we live in, you know. And what we're trying to do is to let that, let go of that delusion drop that delusion. So you can look to sources of wisdom to evaluate the kinds of insights that you have. If you have a, a, an, an insight, uh, a different kind, a different way of seeing things, as far as a mundane insight goes, An example of a mundane insight might be that you realize that you always react to this kind of situation in this particular way and it doesn't work. Why didn't I notice that this doesn't ever work? Well, I have, but I just keep on reacting the same way. But you have this insight that, oh, I've been doing this all this time because of these things in my past. And now that I recognize where it comes from, I can let go of it. And I don't have to keep reacting that way, and then if things work better, you know that was a valid insight. If things get even worse, you know it wasn't right? um, as far as supra mundane insights if if you have an insight an understanding an experience uh, a common experience that people have is uh, is that they'll suddenly slip into a mode of wow, I just I feel really connected to everything. I feel a part of everything. Now that, that's an inside experience. And if it alters, if it permanently transforms the way you perceive your relationship to everything, if from that point on that you, uh, it may it may come and go, it may be immature, but if consistently there is always some degree of that, realization that there's a kind of oneness that I'm about everything that I'm a part of and I'm really not separate the way I feel then you know you you refer to the the wisdom of the Buddha or Ramana Maharshi or whoever is your teacher and source of wisdom and you say okay that is a way of perceiving things that those who have achieved true wisdom uh have been trying to express, and now I'm experiencing it. You know, you know, it's the real thing. It's the real McCoy. And what you want to do, you see, you can have an insight experience, and you can have a taste of insight, but it kind of goes away, and it becomes a peak experience. And you keep remembering, "Oh, I wish, I wish I could get back to that state," but it doesn't stay with you. Right? Uh, what you want when you have an insight experience like that. Or, or any of the other kinds of, uh, inside experiences that you have is, is you, you, you want to take, you want to sustain that for as long as you can. So if we take, for example, the fairly common experience that people have of slipping into that mode of feeling connected and at one with everything. And then it passes, but you can remember it. And if you keep remembering it and if you keep trying to see things that way as much as you can uh after after that event has occurred, then it starts to take hold it starts to mature it starts to become uh it it becomes a true insight um, if you can if you're fortunate enough to know. Uh, or to be able to remember what it is that allowed you to slip into that alternative mode of perception and can repeat it so much the better as a matter of fact, when it comes to uh, like the ultimate insight is the insight uh, that brings together all of these things and has as its core the realization that that you uh, there is no separate self that you as a person have no separate self, that you are an interconnected uh, part of everything, that you are a process, not a thing, that you are impermanent, that that the idea of yourself is a useful fiction, but it's completely empty, so on and so forth. That happens, then that's stream entry or Darsana Marga, the, the path of seeing. That's the transition from being a worldling to being a, an awakened being and that's what when that kind of insight happens um, the most important thing to do that you can do uh, which often isn't taught is to repeat that experience as soon as possible and as often as possible right until to help it become consolidated so that it becomes the way that you see things now in the, uh, in the early Buddhist tradition, which persists today largely in the form of Theravadan Buddhism, they call that first stage the seven times returner. And that's because there's large parts of your mind that didn't get the message yet. And there's large parts of your mind that only got part of the message. And you will find yourself in situations where those are the parts of your mind that dominate and you are no longer functioning from the place of that wisdom that you have acquired. And that's why it's called seven times Return." Seven just means it's going to happen. It's not going to happen a huge number of times, but it's going to happen. And it's probably going to happen more than once. That's, that's what seven symbolizes, right? So, uh, we Thank probably you. should take a break. Oh, look at all those questions. Eager. Um... I can continue this indefinitely. <laughs> how many? How many people want to take a break? Um, <laughs> you're kind of outvoted, <laughs> but um, um, but we will take a break shortly. Just because I know it's I know you need it and it's good for you. And feel free to step out for a moment if you need to. Okay. So where were the questions? They were all over the place. I. Okay
5: um I guess this is related to what you've been saying, which has been very helpful but um my my question has to do with my experience for the last several months, which um I'm feeling some sense of confusion there about. I have a very difficult time doing sitting meditation, so my preferred form of meditation is walking meditation. Mm. And I'm very fortunate to live in an area where there's a beautiful view, river, sky, everything. So when I walk, I I see the sky, the clouds, the water. It's just amazing. Yes. What happens, however, is that as I walk, you know, I focus on the sensation of walking, then occasionally, in occasionally, <laughs> I would look up and it would just be a feeling of awe and amazing and so grateful to be alive. Yes. But then, <laughs> and, and I, and, and I want to, and I feel this urge to kind of move my uh, object of attention from the walking to the seeing, mm-hmm. and yet there's a part of me, it's almost like an internal part that goes nudge nudge, you know, um, hello, back to walking, and <laughs> and I'm a little confused about what I what would be best for me to do because I do want to engage in I guess what Pema Chodron calls cheerfulness practice, you know, to have those moments where I am glad to be alive, and yeah. yet it, it. And yet, if I go back and focus on the sensation of walking, mm-hmm. it feels like I'm moving away there from that. But another experience that comes up is that I find that if I try to move my object of attention to the seeing, it's so much easier for me to get lost in thoughts. Yes. And I completely lose... The attention, the peripheral awareness, you know, it's just the loss in thoughts versus the walking sensation obviously helps me focus and pulls the peripheral awareness back. But what do you you suggest as the sort of the optimal balancing of
0: the... Okay, well, first of all, for the benefit of everybody else, I'll point out that amongst the many benefits of walking meditation, if you can walk in a beautiful environment, you can generate a strong sense of joy and happiness and contentedness, which then you can go and sit down and have an extremely productive and powerful sitting meditation. I would suggest to you, you said you mostly do walking meditation. I would suggest to you that you use that walking meditation. I mean, it is helping you develop stable attention and it is helping you develop strong peripheral awareness but do some sitting practice and you're mostly experiencing extrospective awareness, although you're introspectively aware of the state of joy and everything that it elicits. When you sit down and when you close your eyes, then you can, you can develop a very strong state of introspective awareness. So use, use what the walking meditation has given you and, and use it to move forward in, in the process. Um that state of joy in itself, as you described it, is is giving you little tastes of what it would be like to be a person who actually had these deep insights. So let's do what we need to do to actually allow those insights to occur. That's one of the things that I would like to explain to you whether you practice or not life is always presenting you with insight experiences. Everybody out there is having experiences which have the potential to lead to insight but and what they are is they are experiences where the view of the of reality the delusion that they live in is revealed not to be the way it really is, but they overlook it, they rationalize it away, they, oh, that's nice, and move on, get you know, go back to the problem at hand, things like that. What meditation and developing powerful mindfulness does for you is two things. One is you no longer gloss over and miss those inside experiences that arise. You, you know, you recognize them and you can allow yourself to be with them and, and let them sort of percolate down to the deep level that they need to and not analyze them. Stay in a state of mindfulness. Keep your keep your attention and your analytical faculties. Um, I mean, use them, use them, only to the degree that they complement the process of, of uh, understanding and realization that comes to you. The second thing that developing powerful mindfulness through meditation does is it causes you to have much more powerful insight experiences They usually occur during meditation, but the longer you've been meditating, the more likely they're, hap- they're going to happen when you're walking down the street or... Fixing dinner or something like that as well. Okay. So anyway, back to your situation. Yeah, um, walking meditation. You've kind of taken walking meditation to the point now where what take the gifts that it's given you, and go back into the sitting practice, and and see where that see what that has to offer.
5: Okay. Um. I will try um, the then, in terms of the urge to change my object of attention to seeing versus the motion of walking, I guess I'm hearing maybe your suggestion is to follow the internal nudge that says go go back that
0: yeah, as far put as your attention. as far as the walking goes, yeah uh, certainly if you you know if if. Uh you can uh, stop walking and just uh, use your uh, use your attention to explore objects uh, uh, visual objects and but you say what's happening is that thoughts arise and you get caught by the thoughts right so you don't want that to happen so don't do it. You may reach you may you may come to the point where you can explore your visual field without that happening, and and that's good. What's happened? Well, it's really quite simple, is that you successfully trained yourself to focus your attention on the walking, sensations of walking without getting caught by thoughts. You haven't trained yourself to experience the visual world without getting caught by thoughts. You could do that. That can happen. But here, you don't want to get caught up by the nice little things that happen along the way. You don't want to forget that, that there's, a, there's an overall purpose to this, you want to awaken, you want to have insights. And so uh, while it's really nice to stop and smell the roses along the way, you, you don't want to get caught up in that because the, the roses die.
5: Yes, but i I'd always thought that those experiences are you know they're makes giving you happy
0: you, they're giving you a taste of something that when you have when, when you've achieved real insight, when you've awakened and as those insights mature, they can become the place that you live from they can they can become the place that you live from in the midst of difficult, emotionally traumatic situations. They can be the place that you live from when you're dealing with uh, uh, physical pain and, and illness and, uh, or grief or things like that. That's much more valuable than, uh, I mean, if you can only experience them when you do walking meditation under the right circumstances, right? Right. Thank you so much. Okay, I'm going to
8: enforce a break after this question. All right, I was wondering um, kind of the balance between peripheral awareness and attention in meditation. So I feel when I focus on my meditation objects, Um, it can either be a hard focus or a soft focus. And it can be a soft focus. Uh, The focus is very soft on the breath, um, but it's still on the breath. It's not moving. Mm -hmm. Is there one that's better than the other, enforcing a a hard focus, where the peripheral awareness is kind of more tunneled?
0: It's all in terms of um, what you want to do and what you need to do. Uh, A soft focus allows you to put more of your conscious power into awareness and if it's going into a metacognitive introspective awareness then that is a good reason for soft focus on the other hand uh, a very close focus you're calling it a hard focus a very close very you know detailed focus can shift you into a state where you can have a uh, you can have an inside experience into impermanence and or emptiness uh and uh and, and so that's valuable as well so you know there's not an answer that one is better than the other there are different uh, the different things that you can do with it and it's if you're at a place where whether your focus is is really strong or whether your focus is soft that your attention doesn't alternate now that's really great that means That means that you're at least stage six or stage seven. Uh, if it's completely effortless, then, then you're at stage eight. And if so, by the time you, by the time you get to stage seven, there are a lot of really powerful insight practices that you can do. And, uh, they're, you know, I introduce them in the book as means to achieve the goals of shamatha for that particular stage. But, what I'm I'm telling you but not emphasizing very strongly in the text is these are actually insight practices and they're very powerful insight practices. And it's very rare for somebody to get to that stage without having insight and uh, very often uh, at
8: least uh, the first uh, stage of awakening. Okay, as a follow-up question, um, say in, in just daily life, trying to cultivate kind of the feeling of vigilant um, peripheral awareness. Um, it seems harder to me because I don't have a, an anchor for attention. Um, so is there a way to cultivate strong, vigilant awareness without when attention is necessarily moving between the tasks I have to complete throughout the day?
0: Yes. Um, in, in daily life, we do that by usually focusing our attention on whatever we're doing at the moment uh, or whatever is convenient. You know, if you're not doing anything, if you're just sitting in a chair, you can you can anchor your attention to your breath. If you're walking and, uh, you know, uh, you don't need to use a lot of attention in your navigation, then you can uh, anchor your attention to the sensations of of walking. If you're washing the dishes, if you're brushing your teeth, uh, and when you get really good at this, if you're filling out your income tax return, you can anchor your attention to that while being while dwelling in a state of metacognitive introspective awareness. You're enjoying the show as you watch your mind uh, uh, fill out, fill out line after line of your income tax form, and you watch the different emotions that arise. The, the emotion <laughs> of, oh no, I had no idea was it was going to cost me money. And, you know.
8: Uh, you can watch those thoughts and feelings arise. Right? So, uh, and finally, sometimes I'm not sure if I'm misinterpreting my experience, but I'll feel like attention isn't really anywhere in particular; it's just resting in awareness. Is it, is that something that happens, or that's something that happens? Yes. Okay. Um,
0: you just rest in awareness. Where uh, there's two possibilities: one is that attention essentially becomes so minimal that it's uh, it's it's not. You, you don't even recognize its presence. The other thing that is far more interesting, uh, and far is where it's essentially attention expands and, uh, merges with peripheral awareness. So this brings all of that, uh, analytical power, uh, it becomes married to, uh, this whole holistic, uh, non-self-oriented perspective. And that's an incredibly powerful insight state. Uh, it's, uh, it's the essence of what Mahamudra and Dzogchen practices are about. They are trying to bring you to that state of the merging of attention and awareness. You have an extremely powerful experience of, uh, you know, it, it feels open and vast, and you are essentially meditating on the mind itself. Thank you. So we will take a 15-minute break. And actually, when we come back, um, just for the fun of it, we'll do it.